Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and welcome to the Planet Earth podcast from the centre of England's capital city, where you can find 760 different species, a penguin beach and a gorilla kingdom, all within roaring, squawking and grunting distance of Regent's Park. It's the world's first scientific zoo and you'll find out why I'm outside the reptile house in just a moment. Later in the podcast, why we've got to look at buildings differently if we want to reduce carbon emissions and the perils of working with frozen mud from one of the world's most mysterious ecosystems. I have to ask you not to touch bits of this freezer because I've got nice big blue insulated gloves on. If you touch it, you'll get stuck to it and then we have serious problems. The Zoological Society of London was founded by Stanford Raffles, he of Singapore fame, in 1828. A year later, the Society opened the London Zoo, and since then it has run conservation programmes both here and in over 50 countries worldwide. And I'm in front of the Reptile House, made even more famous by a certain Harry Potter, because there's an increasing threat to a number of amphibian species around the world in the form of a fungus. Over 200 amphibian species are thought to have become extinct and the problem of fungal infections isn't restricted to frogs, toads and newts or other amphibians because during the 19th century it caused the potato famine in Ireland and according to new research it could affect food security today. Well, I'm joined by Dr Trent Garner from the Institute of Zoology and Dr Matthew Fisher from the Department of Infectious Disease Epidemiology at Imperial College London. Matthew, if we can um, cope with being hassled by a helicopter overhead, it sounds a serious problem. Why haven't we heard more about fungal infections actually affecting biodiversity? Well, fungal infections haven't really been a problem until the last two decades. And what we've noticed is that there are far more infections now than there used to be. I mean, we know about fungi driving frogs extinct, but there have also been very aggressive emergencies in bat populations in North America, bat white nose syndrome. And we're also seeing dramatic emergencies in forests, so we all know about Dutch elm disease. But also in crops, too, there are new virulent forms of fungal lineages which can devastate entire crops. So UG99 has a demonstrated potential to wipe out a quarter of the world's wheat supply. So we've been thinking very hard about why this is occurring and what these trends that we're observing actually mean. Right, well let's look at one particular, how a fungus affects one particular species and that's frogs. Trent, how bad have frog populations been affected? In some parts of the world, they're thinking that species have actually gone extinct due to this fungus. And that's a rather unusual thing to have a parasite drive its host to extinction. Not only has this happened in one part of the world, but it's actually happened on multiple continents. And that's the thing that's so worrying, that such an unusual occurrence can actually be replicated on a global scale. Of course, that's not just species extinctions that are happening. We're seeing catastrophic population declines, where the remnant populations are so small that they could go extinct at the blink of an eye for any reason, because there's just not enough numbers there to maintain the population. And again, this is occurring at a global scale. Right, well, I think it's time, listening to those helicopters, to actually go inside the the reptile house, get out of the noise here, and perhaps go and see some of the frogs that have been affected. All right. Let's go through the doors. Oh, still noisy, but uh, it's a popular time. Lots of school children and uh, familiar glass-fronted cases containing snakes and lizards, geckos on my left there, an African bullfrog and 
a blue poison dart frog. Oh, that is beautiful. That is a vivid blue, isn't it? They are beautiful, aren't they? And they come from a family of frogs that's been heavily affected by the fungus in Latin America. Some of the species within the family are presumed extinct due to the emerging infectious disease. Is the fungus that affects these frogs the same, Matt, that affects all frogs around the world, or are there different strains? No, there's one single strain that's emerged, and we've dated that to the mid-1970s, perhaps a little bit earlier than that, and that seems to have uh, emerged pretty much simultaneously in five continents. Trent, what other frogs here in this reptile house have, um, have been affected? Well, if we go over here, there's actually a salamander species called the axolotl, and it's a member of the family of ambistomatid salamanders. And while we don't have any evidence of this species actually being affected by the disease, they certainly are infected with the fungus. I don't think I've ever seen an axolotl before. It it almost looks like a missing link between a a frog and a fish. (laughs) Indeed, and it's it's a critically endangered species. Now, Matthew mentioned about it spread over five continents. What has caused the fungus to be spread in that way? I think that's a really good question and I think we're still developing the evidence base to actually answer that question. Certainly a a lot of people invoke amphibian trade as being responsible for for the spread and we do have some evidence that amphibian trade has been responsible for some spread events. Exactly how it's been responsible for spread overall is yet to be determined. Which, which brings us back to sort of food security and the overall all view here, is when you have um, a fungus that can affect and potentially devastate crops of wheat or rice, that's extremely worrying. What can be done about this? Does this mean greater food security is, is needed or even greater perhaps sort of environmental security? We would argue that much stronger international biosecurity is necessary. We see the doors to our countries absolutely wide open for the trade of animals and plants in the nursery trade or in the pet trade. And these hosts have the demonstrated potential to carry infections, new infections, into countries. And, you know, we're witnessing the effect of that, the manifested potential of these pathogens. So we need to quarantine more and we need to give the international organisations which control trade in bioactive material more muscle. Do you think it's too late, Trent? No, I I, I agree with Matt that we need to tighten up regulations and, and tighten up enforcement to reduce the risk of disease being transported around. But even if disease occurs in an area, even if disease does emerge in an area, I do think that steps can be taken to reduce forcing of infection and potentially reduce the effects of the parasite without necessarily eliminating the parasite. Trent Garner from the Zoological Society and Matthew Fisher from Imperial College London. Thank you both very much. This is the Planet Earth podcast. Hydrothermal vents were only discovered in the 1970s but have turned out to be some of the most fascinating ecosystems on Earth. These deep-sea geysers are teeming with unusual life from weird pale octopus to the recently identified hoff or yeti crab, as discussed on our podcast earlier this year. But there are some fundamental questions scientists studying hydrothermal vents don't yet know the answers to. Claire Wolds at the University of Leeds, for instance, is investigating food webs. What does everything living in the sediments around hydrothermal vents eat? Richard Hollingham went to visit her lab in Leeds, where she showed him the samples that she works on. 
We're going to have a look at some of my samples from the Southern Ocean. They're sediment samples, uh, and they're kept in this minus 80-degree freezer here. They're kept at such a cold temperature because of some of the uh, things that I want to look at in them. So you've got this towering freezer cabinet beside. It's about two metres in height. It says minus 80-degree freezer on it. OK, open it up. OK, here we go. And uh, I have to ask you not to touch bits of this freezer because I've got nice big blue insulated gloves on. If you touch it, you'll get stuck to it. And then we have serious problems. Okay, here we go. Oh, you can feel the cold. It's like a slice of Antarctica just there. Okay, I'm not touching it. Okay, I'm going to open this bottom drawer here. So this is the one that my samples are kept in. And these literally bags of mud are mine. You can hear the... uh, crackle that's just a plastic bag but it's because it's so cold it sounds really brittle so we'll take these out put them on the bench and have a quick look so we've got what frozen sediment samples from from where this site um, is called Hook Ridge. That's the name of the, the feature on the sea floor that we were studying. And it's what we call a diffuse hydrothermal venting site. So there was geochemical evidence in the water that there is hydrothermal venting going on there. But there is also, instead of this kind of rocky bottom with uh, chimneys, there's actually a cover of soft sediment or mud over that. So the hydrothermal fluids are coming bubbling out through the mud. And that's the type of site that these come from. I have to say, if we can look through the bag, again, I'm not going to touch that, it just looks like crisp-sized bags of frozen mud. That is actually what it it is, but they're very carefully labelled bags of of frozen mud. Now, we have to put these back pretty quick because you don't want them to get warm. That's right, I don't want them to get warm. We also can't open and close the freezer too much because it forms a vacuum when you shut the door. So we'll put these back in and, and then we can keep the freezer nice and cold. Okay, and the big door... That's closed, and uh, we have to lock this now just to make sure that the samples don't get interfered with. So we've come into the microscopy lab, and appropriately enough, there is a microscope, and under there you've got a a, a sizable Petri dish, and this is some of the sample, but at room temperature now. Yes, that's right. This is a sample that was actually preserved slightly differently. It was pickled, if you like, in formalin. And what I've done this morning is I've uh, taken the whole sediment sample and I've sieved it. So all of the really fine particles, the fine muddy particles, have gone through the sieve and they're in a bucket in the next lab waiting for me to put them back in the jar. And what we're looking at is the coarser fraction, greater than 250 microns in size. That's a quarter of a millimetre, so still quite small. And we're going to have a look at it under the microscope to see what animals are living in the sediment that we can pick out for analysis. Okay, so let's, uh, let's have a look. I believe I've left um, an actual worm or, or fragment of a worm in the centre of the field of view there. Oh, okay, yes. That particular individual isn't, isn't very coloured. It, that, that's a kind of clearish, whitish colour. Some of the ones that we find have uh, greens or reds in their colouring. And so what are you trying to find out? I'm interested in carbon cycling. That really means where is the food coming from for this ecosystem and how does that food travel through the ecosystem? So who is eating what and who is eating who else? And and that's what I'm trying to find out through my experiments. And and how are you doing that? I presume it doesn't just involve looking down a microscope. At 
a hydrothermal vent system, we have a really interesting phenomenon in that the biological community there has two different sources of food. Mostly in the deep sea, there's only one source of food. That's food that falls down from the surface ocean, from plant production in the surface ocean. At a hydrothermal vent, there are really interesting microbial communities that can also make food, just like plants do at the surface. And instead of using sunlight, because there's no sunlight at 1,500 metres in the ocean, they use chemical energy. They use the chemical energy from all of these strange volcanic fluids seeping out of the seafloor. So this biological community has a choice of two different food types. It can eat algae sinking from the surface of the ocean, or it can eat bacteria that are producing food in situ on the seafloor. And the thing we don't know is to what extent is this community reliant on those two different types of food? So where's the carbon coming from? How is it being cycled? And how are you trying to look at that, investigate that? Okay, so I I did some experiments where I collected sediment cores. I collected tubes full of sediment that had all of their natural structure and their natural biology intact. And I then added chemical labels to those cores. Some of that was chemically labelled algae, and in different cores I added a chemical label that the in-situ bacteria would take up. So I'm labelling the two different food types. Uh, I'm then going to pick out the animals from these sediment samples and see which animals ate which different type of food. And I suppose this is fairly fundamental stuff because you don't really understand these processes that are going on in, in these communities. It is a very fundamental aspect of understanding an ecosystem to understand uh, where the food supply and where the energy supply for that ecosystem is coming from. And is it quite exciting to be working on something that no one else has done in an environment that really we've only started exploring in the last 10, 20 years. Yes, that's fantastically exciting. I feel very privileged to be in this position of uh, doing something for the first time. Often in science we find ourselves adding details or refining hypotheses. In this case it's really exploratory and that's fantastically exciting. Claire Wolds at the University of Leeds talking to Richard Hollingham and we'll put some pictures of Claire on our Facebook page. Well I've come outside of the rather noisy reptile house to introduce our next report and it's about energy use in the home. It's one of the biggest sources of fossil fuel emissions around the world and as the UK aims to reduce its carbon emissions by 80% by 2050 it wants to make all new homes zero carbon by 2016. But Dr Katie Jander from the University of Oxford's Environmental Change Institute thinks that it's more than just energy-efficient buildings that are needed. She believes that the way we use buildings is as important as their design when it comes to energy use. So I began by asking Katie why she wants people to look differently at their homes. Buildings do respond not just to us, but also to the external environment. And so a lot of the work that's happening now on occupants and behavior suggests that all you need to look at is the lights um, in the building or turn off your computer. And while that is true, there's also the dynamic system of the building responding to outdoors. Um, So it's the heating which really makes the biggest impact on energy use. And so if you don't think about the building constantly responding not just to you but also to the external conditions, then basically you're missing a lot of the picture in terms of how the building is using energy to make your job possible. 
What do you mean by a building responding to external conditions? If it's hot outside, the building will heat up. If one side of the building faces the sun, that will get hotter faster. One of the things that happened in the early part of the last century was something called the international style, which is basically the sealed all-glass buildings which are air-conditioned. And if you look at those buildings, they're the same all over the world. They're the same on all four sides, but actually the sun, which is the major source of radiation in our in our world, that the buildings don't seem to respond to the sun differently, but of course they absolutely are. The rooms that, that are on the north side of the building away from the sun, at least in our um, hemisphere, uh, will get colder, and the ones that are facing the sun will get warmer. But the architecture seems to pretend that that does not happen, which I f- find to be very bizarre. It's funny you should say that because I have actually been in buildings yeah. where that's been the case, and actually some rooms were unbearably hot and you couldn't put air conditioning on because it's centrally controlled and it affects every room and people apparently in rooms on the other side of the building were frequently too cold and wanted the heating on so is this an architectural problem is this a design problem Oh, my architecture friends will not like me for this, but I, I think that there is. There's a, a, often a tension between design and performance. People who do energy-conscious design say that there is no tension, that a building should be like a sailboat, and it should work together with the, the forces that it's responding to. And you can certainly imagine that that is true. However, that's not really the built environment that we live in today, mostly because of heating systems and particularly air conditioning. So how do you make people look at energy use differently? Well, I don't think you can make people do anything, (laughs) to be honest, but I think you can invite them to think of things differently. And this would be both for architects. So the work that I do looks both at changing the nature of the architectural education. What is it that architects learn how to do when they are designing a building or, in fact, redesigning a building, which is what I think the next generation of architects needs to learn how to do, that that we're not working with the blue sky sort of situation. The existing building stock needs a lot of help. I think architects are actually really well situated to provide some of that help and make things better, but they need to learn how to do that. And currently, a lot of the architectural education is focused on building new, wonderful, exciting things, things that are exciting to architects, but may not be the sailboat that we're looking for. And so I think that's the question on the professional side. I'm also interested in education for non-professionals. So that would be, the analogy here would be thinking about how you learn how to drive a car. And there's, in every country, or most countries anyway, have, have regimes around how you learn how to drive a car, but there is no such regime around how you learn how to drive your building. And, you know, again, you can't make people be good drivers. <laughs> sort of like an, an instruction manual for the house, you mean? It goes beyond instruction manual because people can always ignore manuals. And that would be like if you learn how to drive a car just by reading the instruction manual for it. That's not enough. Buildings are, if you want to continue the analogy, not to overextend it, but they can also be dangerous things. that we're, That's what we're finding with, with carbon emissions. They're just dangerous on a much slower time scale. So we don't recognize it in the same way. But if you could come up with sort of a social understanding of appropriate use or appropriate driving 
of a building, I think that would go a long way towards resolving some of the problems that we have. Dr Katie Jander from Oxford University, ending this edition of the Planet Earth podcast from the Natural Environment Research Council. My thanks to London Zoo for letting me see their wonderful frogs. Don't forget to visit us on Facebook, where you'll find some of the photos I've taken here today, and do follow us on Twitter. I'm Sue Nelson. Thanks for listening.